You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Blue Ribbon Restaurant Group is driven by the passion and vision of the Bromberg Brothers. Their original outpost on a quiet corner in Soho was and is the unofficial hangout for chefs. As Anthony de Bourdain said, they serve the kind of delicious, low-impact, high-flavor, unpretentious food that we all like to eat. Okay, so I am sitting here with uh, Bruce Bromberg of the Bromberg Brothers. Uh, his brother Eric is equally as famous. Uh, so famous guys from New Jersey. We got Springsteen, we got Travolta, we got Bon Jovi, and the, the Bromberg and now Brothers. The yeah. uh, so hey, man, um, before we really go in, you just told me your schedule because um, we know it started, or maybe people don't know, but it started with this amazing outpost in Soho uh, that was on the edge of nowhere. Exactly. Uh, duck man would walk by selling his little ducks, and um, it was desolate. And it, was, it wasn't even considered Soho, right? We were west of West Broadway oh, right. at that point. You're right. So we were kind of in no man's land. Right. And then the realtor said, you know, you could rent these apartments a lot more if we called Soho. Exactly. <laughs> just expanded a little bit. And bingo. Uh, but let's uh, just tell people, like, your schedule. We were just chatting before this. We would get in our groove on, listen to your punk band, uh, Heavy <laughs> Flow, and having a glass of wine, pre-gaming. Uh, yep. But, like, t- tell people where you just came from. Because like, now people just think of, some people just think of 97 Sullivan Street. But right. you have, you're right. everywhere, and to the credit, the quality and the passion that, that you guys do is there everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's always been about that consistency and yeah. having it yeah. feel like, Mm-hmm. the neighborhood place that you're connected to, and at the end of the day, that we're connected to, right? right. We, we never took on projects that we were just putting our name on and hoping for the best kind of thing. Yeah, no. But yeah, we're in, I mean, obviously New York for the first 15 years, maybe a little bit longer, 17 years. The first thing we did outside of New York was Vegas, yeah. and that was in 2010. Right. And then... Uh, that led to a number. I actually moved to Vegas to open those restaurants, and that I, I promised my wife Carrie it would be you know three to right. six months, get out of the the cold New York City winter, and it turned into like four years. <laughs> I'm still uh, still right. trying to get through that one. Um, and then you know now we're in Miami, right? We're in LA, and uh, through Brooklyn Bowl we have restaurants, uh, restaurants, concert venues in Philly. We just opened a couple of weeks ago in Philly, which Crazy. is just awesome. Nashville a couple of months ago. We tried to open like two years ago, which didn't work <laughs> out so well. Um, but yeah, we opened a few months ago, and so yeah, we're in like six cities, and Boston is a couple of months away, and that'll be our. Seventh city, which is Jesus. just crazy. Yeah. You know, we, we kept it yeah. all like downtown in a four block radius for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> and it's and now funny. we're across the country. Yeah. Uh, look, I think it's a testament to what you do. The running line with my friends always have been, 
hey, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Where are you going for Grand Cru Chablis and oysters? And there's only one place, and it was yes. 97 Sullivan. Yeah. Uh, that and yeah. the bone marrow. Yeah. Like, everyone has done bone marrow since, but you guys are definitely at the forefront of that. Yeah. And, and still to this day, I was with the guy from Nagazawa, and mm. somebody was talking about bone marrow. He goes, dude, come on. It's, it's Blue Ribbon. Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah. Like, yeah. Where, yeah. where else are you going to go? No. Uh, but that's a testament to what you guys did. So let's talk about, like, you, you and your brother, your, your family, New Jersey. Obviously, you guys, your dad's like, you guys are too big for Jersey. Get the hell out of here. Something <laughs> happened. Uh, but you guys end up. So tell me about just your education because the, the Cordon Bleu thing is like super impressive. Yeah. And, and your life there, you speak French. and Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my brother Eric and I were always, we have an older brother, Ken, who works with us as well and has been part of Blue Ribbon now for 15 years or right. so, 17 years, something like that. And he always helped us before. Right. He's the lawyer who we would always call nice late one. at night. Right. Um, but yeah, we grew up in this incredibly food-centric household. Right. Uh, my mom's grandma was an amazing cook. Holidays. We always say we're, we're culinary Jews. We're like driven <laughs> by, you know, holidays are all about the food for yeah, us. But sure. um, we grew up with our dad just obsessed with the next meal. It literally, he was a lawyer in New Jersey, a successful guy, but it was about the next meal. And he would just plan and he would take us to Little Italy and Chinatown. You know, those were the easy trips. He'd take, you know, we grew up in Morristown, 45 minutes from New York. Sure. And it was just every weekend was a journey and it was centered around where we were dining. Then it turned into our trips to camp. We went to camp in Maine. And it was, where are you stopping along the way? You know, New Haven, you were hitting Pepe's, whatever, the clam pizza when you got to New Hampshire. I love it. This clam shack. When you got to Maine, it was lobsters at this place. And it was all planned out. And that was kind of, we just, and restaurants were sacred to my dad. It was an important thing. And it was like... If you didn't behave, everything was based on behavior with my father, right? It was like you didn't get to go out to the restaurant if you didn't behave. That's a great stick to wield. And and it was a big stick because we loved restaurants. We were obsessed. And it just became a part of of our youth really was, you know, what dad was making or where he was taking us, yeah. what crazy things were going on in the kitchen. And do, you, do you know what's funny? There's, there's a consciousness to food that people I think are just beginning to understand. There's lots of people talking about nutritional density and all this stuff. Yeah. But what's really coming to light now is that people realize, and particularly with COVID, with the absence of community, yeah. that, you know, sharing a meal or looking forward to a meal and breaking bread with somebody and staring in their eyes, um, it releases a hormone in your body. And that's a fact. Yeah. But it's a spiritual experience. It's experiential. Right? right? It, Food yeah. is all the senses going on. It's, it's always interesting when somebody says, what's the best meal or what's, you know, the best restaurant? And yeah. It's that experience, yeah. right? It's it's running around France with you guys and eating in some casual little place. Has yeah. anything ever tasted better? Like having the snails in Bedouin, you know, Eat, next to oh. the field where they were harvested and drinking yeah. a Cote de Ventoux or something. Yeah. There's nothing better than that. To me, that's the best meal every time. Sure. Every yeah. time. So um, yeah. we're going to jump around a little bit because yeah. I want to get to – I got to get to when you jump to Paris and why yeah. you got – to Paris because I'm sure it was like a, a bunch <laughs> yeah. of uh, there was a maelstrom a lot of, of fortuitous uh, uh, <laughs> things had to happen for that day uh, right, yeah. but I won't forget we went to the Hospice de Rhone at the George Sank Hotel in Paris <laughs> we were going to this big uh, tasting and a fancy lunch at yeah. the Sank and um, 
you went to school there, so you knew everybody. Yeah. And we, we, we were, you dragged it to every bar. It was like, I don't know, three in the morning at this point. Yeah. And we drank a lot. And you said, well, I got to go to my famous favorite restaurant supply store because uh, if you go to Blue Ribbon, the seafood plateaus are epic, but there's yep. apparently there's only one place that, that makes them where they're solid. Used okay. to be, right? Yeah. Now there's a few, but yeah. Well, lots of people have be, right. copied, you know, right. flattery. They, exactly. they have to copy it. Yeah. But I remember at like 3.34, we kind of lit and you said, I got to be up at like 7.30 to go to the restaurant supply store. And I said, I'll go with you. Yeah. And, and you're like, really? Yeah, you're just banging on my door. And I did, woke yep. up, still drunk, go to the restaurant supply store. You know everybody. And then all these guys start dragging us out. Well, we'll have a little copa, a little like jelly jar of like- Right, we walked down the like, street and had drinks with the, and, the salesman. And, and I'm looking, now it's like 11.15 and we're still drunk <laughs> and we had to run back to put our suits on to go to this fancy lunch. And I was just like, you know- whew, how perfect. Yeah. How perfect. Oh, I got it. Spectacular. Did, did you see Kamala Harris just bought a pot, a copper pot, got all sorts of crap for it. It was at De Hillerin, which oh. is where we where we went yeah, that yeah, morning. Um, actually, you were kind enough. I brought these yeah. little uh, cast iron pots with the lids and shipped them to Blue Ribbon. Yeah. Thank you. And you still uh, have them. I, I still have sure. them. Of course um, I do. Everything you buy in that store, yeah. you have oh, for the God. rest of your life. But Nick's just like... Hanging around in Paris with you is yeah. the, like one of the most fun experiences. Yes. Um, and you know, it, and, and I yeah. think it was a little bit from my dad. I learned that he made friends kind of wherever he right. went. Uh, t- not to jump ahead, but he, he passed away a couple years ago. But for his 80th birthday, mm-hmm. 25, basically 80 year olds went to uh, France with him for a week. Literally, people were closing their restaurant. To host his birthday week yeah, dinner, love this guy. And That's something we to just, live for, man. You know, and the old man would come what? out of the kitchen, and the kids would come out. Yeah. And they'd be they'd be telling me stories like, "Your dad's been coming here for thirty years, oh and God. what an honor for us." And yeah. yeah, he was so super passionate about it. But yeah, so I'm just so happy that he transferred those genes to you guys. Yeah, because we've had incredible meals at all the restaurants, and that's why yeah. to your growth, it's about this kind of passion that you guys still have. I mean. I know when you opened Brooklyn, you guys rent an apartment in Brooklyn. You lived there. Yes. You don't just show up and put your name on the door like yeah. lots of chefs do, mm-hmm. you know, Todd, Todd English or whoever. Yeah. They're never there. And I, yeah. I don't think they care about the quality. I'm not even going to shit talk them. But, yeah. uh, but, you know, you guys live there. You live it. You stay there. I went out to L.A. Yeah. You guys, I saw you guys hanging out in L.A. Uh, you yeah. back at Blue Ribbon when, uh, when you opened. I think, uh, you guys you know, were there. We, we, we were there. Just yeah, like, we approach every project like it's the most important thing in the world. And we've named everything Blue Ribbon, right? <laughs> right. We, there's not like 10 different brands going yeah. on. It's yeah. all Blue Ribbon. Yeah. And at the end of the day, our brand is all we got, right? Yeah. And the last meal you serve is really what you're judged on. Sure. So we've just, you know, we've we failed. For Blue Ribbon to have happened, there was a failure pre-Blue Ribbon. Was kind of how huh. I got into the business with right. my brother. Um, we can talk about that too if you want. But yeah. that failure, I think, was so utterly terrifying and so life changing in a way. Like people hear about it, oh, restaurant closed. Like there's real ramifications. Oh, like fuck. the finances involved in these projects it's are suicides. Sig- yeah, I mean restaurants are complicated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but we we've just it's the same way Eric and I have kind of done everything since we were little kids That's so it, cool. we we were just obsessed and yeah. you know we'd we'd 
stay up all night building a speaker and you know building speakers in the basement and we wouldn't come out of that basement for like four days that's right we were just obsessed incredibly competitive the two of you never competitive yeah so it was i was the little brother and i would be really good at helping but eric kind of had the vision right Right. i was like seven and he was 13 and Um, and I just loved, we just loved doing things together, That's right? Cool. I mean, I was probably the annoying little brother, but sure, at the same yeah. time, we just had fun building things. So whatever we build, it's still, it's still like we're in the basement, right. you know, 40 years ago. It's still... You know, it's important and it should be fun. Yeah. And that's just kind of what we've tried to project on everything we've done. So get, get me from um, Morristown, New Jersey to going to the Cordon Bleu. So Eric went first. He's okay. five years older than me, four and a half years older than me. Um, he went to Tulane. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, he, I'm not sure what he studied exactly at Tulane, but maybe it was Po Boys and, uh, <laughs> and Dixie Beer or something. Yeah, I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah. Um, but anyway, at the end of uh, his college career, um, actually, my father's partner's daughter, who's our closest family friends, mm-hmm. wanted to go to Cordon Bleu in Paris. She had the idea, her huh. girl named Jennifer Newman. And Her dad, in 1984, didn't want his single, you know, 21-year-old daughter going to live in Paris by herself. So she was, he said, you know, go ask Eric. Uh, I'm sure Eric will go. Michael, you know, my dad, Mike, will let him go. He loves Paris. And uh, so one thing led to another, and Eric wound up kind of going along with Jennifer to be her, you know, kind of chaperone chaperone a little bit or whatever, just to be there with her. And I think it really clicked with Eric. And he said something and probably the same thing I've said since then, which it was the first time he sent my dad a letter and he said, thank you for sending me to the first school I've ever enjoyed. Oh, wow. And, you know, took however many years. What were you doing at the time? Well, so I was, I was just, I was a freshman at University of Colorado and Eric was going to Cordon Bleu. So that's how that happened. Then I went to, you know, I went to school and I graduated, didn't have a ton of focus when I graduated school. A lot of skiing, (laughs) a lot of extracurricular activities. And, you know, I actually, Eric had moved back to New York at that point. He had come back. He took on the head chef job for Jonathan Waxman at Jams, the original Jams. Sure. Upper Um, East Side, yeah. Upper East Side. And he was working there. And, you know, he was like, you got to go to Paris, do it. Dad will send you, you know, convince him. And I had a whole conversation with my dad. And again, my dad was just any excuse to get to Paris and be involved. So I convinced two of my high school friends and who I reconnected with Suzanne after and, Suzanne uh, and Sefton, yeah. who are, you know, still my partners 30 years How later. Crazy and is that? Suzanne was my prom date. Wow. Senior year. Sefton is my wow. best friend. And oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So then we went to uh, Paris together and I went, you know, I, I, I would love to say I created the whole vibe, but Eric really paved the way. Eric was the first American to be a, a teacher at Cordon Bleu. Wow. That's and impressive. He went to the old school, like the Madame Brassard school the, right. in the apartment building near the Eiffel Tower. Oh, wow. The one that's in like the Julia Julia, you know, oh, where yeah, Julia yeah, sure. Child, all those people right. went. 
I was the first year of when the school moved. So 1989, the school moved, and that's the year I went. So a lot of pressure on you to be as good as your brother? You know, I, I think it wasn't – maybe there was a little bit, but there was a lot of advantages, mm -hmm. I think. I knew the names of the, the uh, teachers, the chefs. I kind of knew the administrators, and I connected with uh, restaurants that my brother apprenticed in. So I wound up apprenticing at the same restaurant Eric apprenticed at. Totally traditional, amazing, like one Michelin star place. Right. I'd been around forever called Le Recamier. And um, so I worked at the same – I went to the same school, grew up in the same house, you know, <laughs> apprenticed in the same restaurants. I went on to apprentice in multiple restaurants. But yeah, I mean, you were one of the first uh, American bakers at Poulain, which is yeah, the I think home I was of the a, baguette and uh, I, I was, Miche. Uh, yeah, the boule Miche. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I worked at Poilin for nine months. And Did you work at Pierre uh, I worked with Garnier, yeah. yep, in yeah. Saint-Étienne when he was like – two stars yeah. and nobody even kind of paid any attention to it, you know. So I've, I've had some chefs on who worked in Paris who didn't speak French that well. Yeah. Uh, Robbie Cox, who uh, worked mm -hmm. at Septime in Paris. Yeah. And uh, I think Clamato, and he was like, he said he didn't know French. He, he was trying to learn. He was going to school and he was getting yelled at and pat, pots thrown him. What was, <laughs> what was it like for you? Um, so it was really actually pretty amazing. My, my first job was Recamier. I mm -hmm. got to Paris. In September, before school started in 1989, I think three days later, I was working at Recamier. Wow. And they were nice to me. Huh. They were, Robert, who was the chef, was utterly amazing. The sous chef is a guy named Bruno Hess, if you've ever had a chocolate Bruno. Oh, no shit. Yeah, yeah. So, who, who closed his restaurant, actually came over years later to help us open Blue Ribbon in 1992. Wow. So... He's since then been banned from the country forever, but that's another story. Uh, he's never been back after that trip. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of you know, it was a it was an amazing experience. They were they were nice and they were teachers. They it wasn't that experience. There was no angst, and it in in a way that shaped what Blue Ribbon is. Sure. Like to see that a kitchen could run. Just based on respect. Well, for me, having gone there for twenty plus years now, to yeah. see the same people. Right. I mean, COVID is the only thing that really shook things up. Where these people like 100%. Sam and Sean and David and these yeah, guys. But our, I love seeing our, James Schrum back. Unbelievable, uh, you know, right? Incredible. Yeah. Um, just, and yeah, I mean, crew. opening night, November third, nineteen ninety two. There was there were fourteen employees. Yeah. Front of house, back of the house, up until COVID a year and a half ago. 11 of those 14 people still work with us. I mean, to me, that says everything. I mean, the whole yeah. opening team has right. stayed intact for 28 years. You're coming up on your 30-year anniversary. 30 November 3rd. That's, yeah. That's absolutely... 11 months away. We're already planning. Yeah, yeah. Hey, man, that's going to be an <laughs> epic fucking party. It's going to um, be epic. Do you know what I, you, I can see, uh, and people are listening, can obviously see, like, if you go to Blue Ribbon, particularly the one on 97 Sullivan, yeah. obviously, it's like, yeah. it feels like a bistro. And yeah. that's where the bone marrow, and why you guys were just yeah. kind of reinventing or, or bringing your, your flair to New York with that kind of French accent on it, you know, yeah. um, where it's like, you just felt, and that's why it became a chef's hangout. I mean, one hundred percent. In the yeah. opening, I talk about uh, um, 
Anthony Bourdain and mm-hmm. his his hanging out there. And yeah. I mean, everybody would hang out there. Everybody in the camaraderie back yeah. in those days, and yeah. there's there's still a little a little bit of it. And but it's a totally different world, right? There yeah. were there were only like twenty chefs back in 1992, that's, right? That's, that's true. <laughs> there, yeah. I mean, um, of course there were more, but I'm saying like. Our community was small. Yeah. It was tight. Do you remember there was a restaurant called Chef's Cuisinaire Club in the 20s Absolutely. or something? And Absolutely. I think that's an evolution of like Blue Ribbon because somebody one day was like, look, there's nine chefs hanging out here. Like, we should right. make a place called the Chef's Club or something. Right, right, I think right. that was never quite by that. Yeah. yeah, and it never quite happened. No, it, it was yeah. Charlie Palmer, right? Yeah. And somebody yeah, yeah. else. You maybe. can't force it. You can't force it. You know. And quite honestly, we had zero clue that we were going to be a chef's hangout. We were musicians. We were chefs. We were out late. We partied, you know, whatever it was. And we were, we, Eric and I both went to school in Paris and we were like, you know, New York is the city that never sleeps. Where the hell do you go out after you've been out partying or seeing a concert or playing in a bar or whatever it was? And we were like, yeah, there's Florent. There was Jory Nui. There were a couple of places. But the chef went home. The maitre d had gone home. Yeah, it was an abbreviated menu. It was either dinery or, but yeah, it wasn't a real experience. And there was one restaurant in Paris. There's multiple, right. but there was one restaurant in Paris called Au Pied de Cochon, right sure. next to De Laurent. Yeah, yeah. And um, in Leal area, and my dad took us there. I mean, I think I was you know nine the first time I went to Pied de Cochon, and it was open. 24 7 and it was awesome it wasn't like actually i think we went there with you i'm sure absolutely we we went there um and it just we were like how does that not exist how does some version of that now we didn't have the financial (laughs) whereabout (laughs) to like create something like uh au pied du cochon but I think we just kind of embodied the spirit of it, where it was the same team, the same chef. Nobody went home. There was wine service. There were there was a good wine list. There was real food being served. Yeah, and it was the same at three fifty in the morning as it was at eight p.m. at night. And I think that's what ultimately yeah. resonated. Yeah, everyone could relax. They knew sure. we had it. We the amount of times control. I would have a meal and then it be out and then you go, ah, let's just go get oysters. Or, ah, let's go get some foie gras. Let's <laughs> yeah. go. You know, and, yeah. But crazy, two thirty, three o'clock in the morning, a line, you know, like, um, like sometimes to get like, in. Thank God, you know, yeah. I, I knew Sean <laughs> was at the door and they'd slide me in. But, like, but yeah, there was months in the beginning. I, I don't know if you remember, but like our first year was really challenging. Yeah. And we were we were busy. We, we did pretty well from the get-go, but we did nothing after 1130. Right. Like, we had a smattering of people. And then, you know, Drew Nearport started to swing by on his way from Montrachet back to his place, wherever he stayed. And he went by a few times, and he was like, oysters in Sierra Nevada, right? Those were the two uh, (laughs) neon signs we had in the window. And he was like, I got to check this out. Then he started bringing in people. And there were a couple guys. There were a couple of – and Mario lived uh, oh, that's right. Had just moved to New York City, like three weeks before Blue Ribbon opened, or something like that. And, and, and where do you go when you get off work? That's the that's, that filled the big void yeah, too, right? Absolutely. Restaurant people get off. Bartenders go. Where right. Everything's closed. Not and instead everything. of just sitting in a whatever a bar and yeah. smoking cigarettes and doing this and wishing you eating a bag of chips or yeah. whatever, yeah. 
All of a sudden, people were comfortable sitting at a tablecloth. The place is electric. Table. It's magical. You go in there. Some places have a vibe. It has it, it has uh, the vibe. Yeah. Um, let's drink a little bit of wine and talk. Uh, we are drinking um, Anne Pichon. Uh, uh, these vineyards are in the shadow of Montfontu. A very good friend of ours, dear friend Mark Pichon, mm. um, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Yep. Um, but the vineyards live on, and his son now is the vineyard and an uh, has taken over. Enough. And uh, but uh, you know we've all cycled with him, so we got to talk about. Uh, and then you know the the kind of meeting of uh, Tom and T. Edward Wines with uh, you guys, which I think there's a such a uh, such a similar passion and vision, and just yeah. someone who thinks outside the box. That's what, yeah. what Tom is. And yeah, and I think you know going back to 1992 in the beginning, and where was Tom working? I forget. He was working at Tutong, right? And Tutong. then him, uh, then he, uh, you know, after of course consulting with his wife Julia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe they weren't even married at the time, uh, and. Uh, no, they were not married. They weren't married at the time, and Julia's like, let's go for it. I mean, she's yeah. a pretty strong, yeah. uh, passionate woman, and I re- too. I so. remember having those conversations with Tom, right? Yeah. It was, we were, we just hit it off with Tom, and we became good friends in the very early days, probably even before the restaurant officially opened, and we just kind of became, we, we were from the same cloth, or whatever yeah. they say, right? And, and both Francophiles. We, Tom's book was we, mostly, f- I think it was all French at the right, very beginning. Right. das from Montmirail, right. Pichon always. Way before yeah. any of that was cool. Yeah. And right, my yeah. dad had a had a house in, you know, 15 minutes from Gigondas in yeah. a little town called Venasque. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we would just talk to Tom about these areas that he loved, yeah. that we had kind of grown up in. And we we really hit it off. And I remember those conversations with, you know, really Eric, my brother, Mm -hmm. and Tom spoke a lot about when Tom was breaking off to do his thing. And we were like, dude, we're just going to buy a shitload of whatever you bring in. So do it. Go for it. It's the kindred spirits uh, kind of supporting each other. And even to this day. Even to this uh, day. Great partners, great friends. um, Yeah. Yeah. We're invited to each other's parties. Uh, but then cycling. Let's talk about cycling because you are a beast of a cyclist. Did you cycle from Colorado to California? I cycled. I did two years ago, right before COVID. I did a part, a section of the Continental Divide Trail. So I did Wyoming, Jackson, uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, down to Salida, Colorado. So about 880 miles. Jesus Christ. Which was, and I did it on a mountain bike, which we're all road, we're wow, all road yeah, cyclists, yeah, yeah. right? We've always been on the road. And, and I, uh, I moved to LA a few years ago to open up the restaurants in Los Angeles and cycling out there was just sketchy. I had yeah. like, I, you know, I cycled around New York City for, for 20 years and didn't have a close call. And I had like two close calls in my first month I, you know, in yeah, LA yeah, on PCH yeah. and Sunset. And I said, this is horrible. I don't want to ride here. And my wife, Carrie, was like, Santa Monica Mountains are right behind you. Go get a mountain bike and let's do, you know, go start riding. So I did and I got into... But, I mean, but we we did uh, Mont yeah. Ventoux together. And, We've done uh, But you did a lot of, of yeah, cycling. Yeah. Um, but you have this crazy adventurous spirit. I mean... Uh, I, I don't remember the Can't time. Can't sit still. Not uh, sure what's uh, up with all yeah, that. But, yeah, I, yeah. I, th- I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, one thing I definitely it, we need to touch It's dangerous, but it is definitely a good thing. I remember like you, I, I saw you, I know you were training, you were going to trek the Himalayas for a month or Nepal. <laughs> yes. I and then I, like, I, you disappeared for a month and you came back and you were like 135 pounds. Oh my God. Right? I was like. Because you're probably about 190 pounds. Yeah. yeah. Right? I, I, I lost, I was about 155 when I came back yeah. after a month on uh, those mountains. And 
Yeah, I could so, not. You could not drop me. I was like the. I was in the best cycling shape of my life. Yeah, after at 155 pounds. Hell yeah, right. Oh my god! And after you know a month at sixteen, seventeen thousand feet. So what inspired this trip? Why? And tell us a little about what you know where it is and what what that training because you were doing that like trip. stairs and yeah. Oh yeah, that right. was that was an amazing thing. I you know when I was in college, it, it was one of the things I really regretted. My my college roommate. Cheers. Yeah. cheers. And how good is this, by mm-hmm. the way? Um, my college roommate invited me to go with his father, who was a UNESCO ambassador or whatever, oh, wow. yeah. to the Himalayas. And I didn't go because my band had a gig. Wow. And I played this gig to like 35 people in some you know bar in Boulder and whatever. And I just never kind of got over it. I right. said, like, what a mistake I made. It was one of those learning moments. Right. So... You know, as I got older, it has just always been in the back of my mind or even the front of my mind that I always wanted to do this trip. And randomly, a, a friend of my wife, my wife's from South Africa, showed up at our, ha- our place in New York. And one night we were just talking and he said, you know, my dream is to trek the Himalayas and do it. And I, you know, we were sitting there with Carrie, myself and this guy, Simon. And Carrie just looked at me and was like, there you go, dude. Just go do it. Wow. And I was like, really? <laughs> you know, it's long. It's You can't go there for, you know, a week. Uh, yeah, and not it's, to mention the, the training. Trip. That's an epic training schedule. And so tell us what the training schedule for that is like. My God, I trained with my really good friend who's become one of my best friends, this guy, Jared Jordan. Um, and we did like altitude training. And our version of altitude training, I lived in Chelsea and I lived in a 14-story building. And we would do the stairwell. And he would have me wear a snorkel. So, <laughs> and then it went to a, like one of those uh, straws, you know, the fat well, straws. And I wow. would do my workouts like with, you know, labored breathing, basically right. not getting enough oxygen. Right. And then he'd bring like Indian food, like spicy dal and feed me that and then make me run the stairs. Wow. And all this training. And I trained every day for a hundred days. I trained religiously every day for a hundred days. I got in pretty solid physical Holy shape. Shit, yeah. I weighed about 180 when I got to Kathmandu. I weighed 155 when I got off the mountain. How long? And ago? it was 24 days on the mountain. Wow. It was. And uh, you're like in little lean-tos and puff you tents. Stay you stay in like little lodges or tents right, right. and just kind of what you can find. Sometimes tents were better than the lodges. The, the yeah. hygiene was not uh, <laughs> high on the list. And the higher you got, it got sketchier and sketchier. Yeah. But we went very early. We went in early March. So it was unbelievably cold, right. but crystal clear weather. So you had no rainstorms. You didn't have any clouds right. or haze. And it was so stunning. Yeah, what's it the, was an amazing And, and what day. are you eating? You're eating, right. you're eating incredibly carefully. Yeah. <laughs> and you're having, you know, lentils. All four, dal, so dal and dry potatoes. packaged goods and anything foraged? Um, no, because there's nothing growing there. Wow. There literally is nothing on Everest. Everest is like the most beautiful place. Huh. But there's nothing there. There's like no life. There's wow. not a branch growing. You know, once you get up high enough, it's just rock and ice. But it's it's just utterly 
enthralling. You cannot stop staring at Everest. When you start pushing yourself at yeah. that level, when you're you know at that super high altitudes and yeah. you're calorie deficient, basically yeah. you're trying to take take everything in as you can. Was it kind of like these crazy like <laughs> breakthrough moments of thought and clarity it, and it, it's it's scared you, shit? It's, <laughs> yeah, all those things. It was the most important thing I think I've ever done. Wow. Um, as far as an individual sure. kind of experience, it, you know, my stepfather said something really interesting to me. He said, like, your perspective is going to change because you've never seen the world from that perspective mm -hmm. before. And I didn't have any idea what he meant, but there is this different way you look at the world. I, I equate it maybe to the same thing as like, being an astronaut and looking down on sure. Earth. And huh. that that moment, right? And they all say the same thing, like, you realize how special this is. And there was a lot of that. And, and you also feel intensely alone because you realize that somebody's not necessarily going to be able to help you and you're not necessarily going to be able to help someone else. How many Even, people are traveling in this? Like, so there were me, two friends, and two Sherpas. So we were a group of five. Okay. Um, but even though there's a guy next to you, you know, when push comes to shove, look, we didn't go all the way up. Our, our highest point was 20,000 feet, but we also had days and days with no one else on the mountain and 40 below zero and Holy challenging fuck. shit, fuck. challenging shit. So you feel empowered and you feel scared and, you know, people kind of, brush Everest off is like, oh, you can just have someone carry you up there yeah, and bu yeah. bullshit. Yeah. I mean, you've got some serious balls if you're going or you're crazy. Like, yeah, it, it's no joke. I think you got the right? nice combination it, of both. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a really great experience. And what I love about it, and I guess why I have a bit of this um, adventurous spirit yeah. is – I don't love routine, and I don't like when things get too complacent. Right. And there's something about, you know, being out on the dirt trail riding my bicycle for two weeks with no, you know, no one around. And right. Because it's somewhere around, like, day four, everything changes. It's it's not in those first three days, right? It's It's kind of day four, day five, where... You're really out there. You're on your own. You're, and you're doing talking stuff. to yourself, and you're talking to and, yourself. And God, and if if you want to talk to God, you're talking to somebody, yeah. right? You're talking to somebody, and I feel like it's just important stuff. It's mm -hmm. just to have that perspective shift mm -hmm. is important. And, and you know, when I'm on the bike, it's it's those little moments. Maybe it's a two hour ride, but. Right. You know, you, you get little bits of that where everything kind of fades away and what's relevant kind of rises to the sure. top. And I, I always say I've written every menu. I've come up with almost every recipe. Like every good idea I've had is in that kind of – and maybe some bad ones too. But is in that those moments where you're out of your comfort a sure. little bit and you know you're pushed somehow I, I i think that's what happens when you're you put yourself so out there um doors open um think like in a, in a mental aspect doors doors open 100%. what was the treacherous moment most treacherous moment on that mountain um we did a thing called chola pass and it was it was like a 14 hour day 
and it brought us up to it actually wasn't the highest point of the trip but it was icy and windy and we were not doing technical climbing so we didn't have crampons right. or ropes and we really should have and and you it, fucking twist an ankle <laughs> and or break I mean, a bone and you're like, like it's right like everything's very severe up yeah. there right if and it's it's like you were saying about what are you eating you're so damn careful yeah. about every bite you literally would take a bite of your you know a taste of your they call it like sherpa stew it's basically just dal lentils right. and whatever it was onions and you know you wait and you make sure you're okay and then you take another taste and you know and you're you're methodical about these things because right a little cold a little stomach ache a little twist of your ankle yeah. you're off that mountain i mean you got to get off it right yeah. you can't hang out there so um but that that you know 4 3:30 in the morning wake up and heading up in the dark with lights and you know, Holy boulders shit. that are six feet high and just out of your reach, you know, and you're just straining and Did ice it, and ev- wind and that ev- was stressful. Everyone yeah. make it okay? Or we we made it fine. Okay. We had no it. I mean, it, uh, you know, the guys, my two uh, uh, trekking partners both got sick at the end. Uh, so the last like three days, I actually, I was the only one who went up to 20,000 feet because we went to do this trek and nobody else could get out of bed. Wow. That was right at the end of the trip, but it, it was extraordinary. And those types of things, I definitely search out. Yeah. Well, right. you know, it's, it's funny. It, it runs parallel with the idea of, you know, how devastated we were last year with COVID. Mm. And you're like, I've had people say, you think Blue Ribbon's going to survive. And I've, yeah. I've thought like... Yeah, definitely. But like, if you put it in scale to like what you're doing, like it's an amazing <laughs> metaphor for like you know, yep. I climbed that fucking mountain. Like, COVID's yeah. not as big as that mountain. Um, no, COVID's not. But it was. It was like it was you, hard. Like you said, it was hard because it was that separation, right? And it's you know, Blue Ribbon has always been the epicenter of the community, and certainly our community. Right. But it's a pretty big community mm-hmm. at this point, right? Thirty years, almost thirty years of Blue Ribbon, and the generations at this point who kind of rely on it, the kids of the people who met, you know, it's amazing. Now we're like, we're feeding these like college kids who, and their parents met on a blind date at Blue Ribbon, got engaged at Blue Ribbon, came like the day they got married at City Hall. And now they're like 20 year old kid is coming in for dinner with his friends or whatever it is, you know? know. But it is just kind of that community. It's that center of the community that is, it was so difficult during COVID. It was so, it was the opposite of 9-11, right? 9-11, everyone like flocked to this place. We all hugged. We all sat there. We all looked into each other's eyes, right? Even even when we were silent and not talking, right? For those first days after 9-11. But there was such an outpouring of humanity that was just spectacular. Camaraderie, yeah. Camaraderie. And restaurants are that, you know? Food is that. And all of a sudden, we weren't allowed to do it. And I think that's what... That's where I had the biggest struggle. Yeah. You know, and then it was to go and putting food in boxes for months. And, you know, no, I, I was like, oh, holy crap, if I have to fold one more box right, and put yeah, one more dish. Yeah. Right? And it worked in some of our restaurants. It didn't really work in other places. But you just kept like, on trekking. You just kept, kept on, on climbing, trekking. man. One, right? one foot in yeah. front of the other. Uh, yeah, no, it's – um, it's just yeah. a, a crazy 
Yeah, it, it was a it was a crazy time. We were so happy when the uh, blue ribbon opened. I, you know, I spent my uh, New Year's Eve. I told you last year with my family because yeah. I'm like, that's one thing I got to give it to New Yorkers. They're they're so <laughs> thick skinned. I'm like, a, a I don't seriously give a shit. resilient group. <laughs> I don't give a shit. I'm going to go out and freeze my ass off. Yeah, I'm going to go spend money. I need to be with my fellow man. I need some yeah. wine. I need some yeah. food. Yeah. Um, and that's really, really what I love about New York. Um, yeah. yeah. So let's. Uh, oh shit! I'd, James Shrum would kill me. He said, "I you gotta ask about the time you ate uh, bugs in Africa." Oh my god! Well, can I ask you what the scariest what thing you were going to eat? Ask? Yeah. <laughs> What's um, the weirdest thing you ever? I thought it was going to be a totally different story. Yeah, right. I'm glad it's the bug story. Um, no, my, so my wife's from South Africa, and uh, I helped my brother-in-law a few years ago. Um, well, it's more than a few years ago. Uh, Ten years ago, I guess. Open a, a lodge in um, Zimbabwe. So I went over to Zimbabwe for a while. Of course and we, you did. Of course I did. Yeah. And we built uh, the kitchen and set everything up. And we were filming a show for Discovery Channel Australia or something right. like that. And it was about the making of the lodge. So we, we, you know, I was the chef from America. I was, you know, whatever. Yeah. So we had to come up with these culinary things that you do in Zimbabwe. The problem is, is there is basically no culinary things you do in Zimbabwe because that country has gone through hell for a generation and a half, almost two generations. And the, you know, government has utterly raped uh, the land, the the land, the imperialists, whoever's in, you know, but Mugabe was there for however many 50 years. So people had really lost all culture and nobody, you know, these things that were handed down, kind of vanished. So we had a lot of trouble finding culinary experiences. Um, anyway, the one we did find was I wound up hanging out with a whole bunch of village people in an area called Chinotimba, which is, I don't know, 20 minutes from Victoria Falls. And basically these mumpani worms, which are these huge caterpillars that create these big tents in the trees you know we're knocking them out of the trees with brooms you knock them out uh, down into nets you catch them you then put them on random like rusted corrugated you know roofing material you let them dry in the sun and you know that is the that is the insect deal so i'm sitting there and we do this whole thing, and I start filming it for a TV, the actual cooking of the right. dish. And good Lord, you know, I wish I could have said they were good. <laughs> they, ah, they really uh, were just, and, you know, the super crispy ones were okay. The ones that didn't quite ooh. get crispy enough were, were not, were not, uh, were not great. But you were, you were man enough to eat them. I made yeah. it through. I, there was actually a worse moment where the cameraman told me that, he had been filming all these adventure things. He had right. done like Bourdain stuff. He had done yeah. all this stuff. And he was like, it was the first time he almost got sick watching somebody <laughs> eat something through the camera. He was like, that oh, pushed me to the oh, edge, man. Oh. You're like great like, on yeah. Fear Factor. Yeah, um, yeah. no, I, I'm not that guy though. I, I'll, I'll eat anything good right. and I'll try just about sure. anything. But yeah. I also, I'm, I, I don't search out. The, like, most obscure shit. Cool. I'm like, you know. Right. Well, we're at the part of the show. So we're going to say, on that trek on Everest, uh, at one moment you kind of lost conscious and you talked to the spiritual being. And he said, Bruce, uh, 
We're going to give you a gift. Okay. And your your gift will be the last day you're on the planet. We're gonna we're gonna let you know what it is, so that you'll have time to make your own food, drink something great, and listen to a great piece of music. So, what would you eat? What would you drink? And what would you listening to uh, on that very last day? Okay. You know, I think. Uh, you know, I I just can't kind of get past the the fanfare, the revelry of uh, oysters and fruit de mer. Yeah, it just is kind of my. You know, if if I'm ever just not feeling great or I'm feeling great or whatever it is, I just somehow I always if I can just sit in front of a plateau fruit de mer yeah. and just try everything and you know the little toast the little rye bread with sure. the mayonnaise and the mignonette and periwinkles the, the periwinkles claws, yeah, you yeah, know and yeah. you, you could eat periwinkles for hours so maybe i could mm. extend that day as long That's as not i a bad possibly idea. Yeah. could um but i think yeah i love that and you know i i think that's that's probably it for me and that, drinking? that could be my last meal um you know, maybe Grode La Rose. I'd oh. say either, you know, and I have these memories from my dad. Um, although this M. Pichon right now yeah, is, uh, is it's right pretty down. alluring. Yeah. But I have these memories of the suppleness of two wines my dad used to, you know, give to us or give us tastes of when right. we were younger. And it was uh, Ducru Bocayou and nice. Grode La Rose. And I actually, a friend of mine gave me in 1966, which is my Ooh. birth year, oh. Ducru Bocayou the other day. Oh, wow. That's and I drank that and I was like, okay. That just, <laughs> you know, it's that, it's that moment where I, I always say like the French, American, French, whatever, New World, Old yeah. World, New World wines are utterly amazing. Until you have the freaking like Grode La Rose yeah. or, you yeah. know, one of those just kind of unreal thing. To me, it's like you listen to Stevie Ray Vaughan play Little Wing and you're like, okay, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> then you listen to the Hendrix version and you're yeah. like, okay, no, sorry. That, that's it. That's it. That's, nice, my, that's my same experience. Okay. And so nice segue into what piece of music are you listening to as you your eyes close and you think about what a wonderful life? Uh, probably... Uh, anything off or the the entire Zappa apostrophe album. Okay. Any anything song? Zappa. Cool. Just say anything Zappa. All right. Man. I'm obsessed. That's awesome. My favorite. Uh, hey, um, I, I'm going to give you a little shout out. Uh, you know, Blue Ribbon's trying to open to four o'clock in the morning. Can't find the staff. <laughs> Anyone wants to work to four Anyone want to go home at six in the morning? Six in the morning. Uh, and, exhausted. And, and, uh, and make a lot of money. Yeah, uh, yeah there's that. Uh, reach out. But um, so people should lo- find you at uh, blue ribbon.com yeah and, and blue ribbon in, restaurants blue ribbon restaurants and what's your Instagram people want to follow you on that uh, Bruce Ribbon blue, Bruce Ribbon yeah hey man thank you for being on uh, DOTJ podcast I appreciate it it was so fun to catch up so fun alright really so. awesome and uh, I might have to fill this glass yeah again. Let's, let's go get some Shirley and oysters let's do that alright cheers man thanks John thanks again for listening Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar.